The Broken Clock Podcast returns, and this episode we are talking about religion and reason. Does being a religious person give you a pass from thinking critically? And ironically enough, Mouse had a religious experience this week. The first two tracks off a brand new ABBA album, the first album in 40 years, dropped this week. And Mouse saw some sort of deity. I think it is a (laughs) a quadruplicate deity or something like that. It is the four. (laughs) Mouse, you've had a week this way. The four have come back to us. All is good in the world. It's like the Chronicles of Narnia, only with... (laughs) 70s folk meets disco what what genre would you call abba they're like all over the place i i know they're, they're linked to disco but they're not they're very eclectic yeah. um because you have you have classical influences they're yeah. like benny benny adores adding baroque curlicues to uh to keyboards uh but you've got also swedish fo- uh swedish folk you've got pop uh, you know, some the soundtracks even go into rock, like you know, Rock Me and uh, uh, what was the name? Of, uh, and well, they, they throw in some Latin rhythms in places too, right? I mean, yeah. uh, people get on Lady Gaga for being derivative of Madonna, but La Isla Bonita was basically Fernando by ABBA. Got, yeah, and you've got, and you know, they they also tried their hand at reggae in uh, yep. Tropical uh, uh, Tropical Paradise. Uh, it's it, it really, ABBA really are kind of, instead of a genre, they're kind of just this sing, this this songwriting sing, singers and songwriters that just just take come up with. It's interesting because if you ever listen to ABBA Undeleted, which was one of the tracks in Thank You for the Music, which is a, com, a four album compilation mm-hmm. with some some obscure tracks. Uh, like one of my favorites is I Am the City uh, mm-hmm. or or you know uh, Cassandra, which is about Greek mythology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, there was this track called "Abba Undeleted," and now Benny and Bjorn have said that they have like five years worth of tapes of their studio sessions mm-hmm. and of unfinished material and the stuff that they've never released. Uh, but in "Abba Undeleted," you got to see a curated snippet of some of the songwriting process. And you you could hear early versions of say take a chance of me oh uh, wow take a chance on me um, that it was like completely and it goes it's really really interesting to hear all of the permutations and then they had a song that never they never finished that they labeled Hamlet that. It, it originally started as this country song. Uh, it, it started as Burning My Bridges, Burning My Bridges, Turning My Path. And then later on, it, it appears as this rock tune. And then the third incarnation is this folk song. When you, you hear a piano and a, and a, and a guitar and the two ladies are, when the autumn leaves are falling to the ground and the air is cold and I think of us and you and I. And it's this very lovely folk song and they never finished it. Yeah, uh, yeah. sometimes uh, things just don't click. Yeah, well, the funny thing is, the funny thing is, uh, there's one one song there, and you you hear songs that are almost you could you you could go you know with a lesser band, uh, this would have been released and right you know it would have, um, 
like just like that just like that it has one of, is one of the mythical ABBA songs that people have always wanted them to finish because they were writing it in like 1979 but it sounds like a track that would have come out in the 90s yeah you had you had a saxophone going going off uh and it was just really interesting um it's like abba is the karmic balance in scandinavia <laughs> to max martin who just writes the same damn song over and over <laughs> and, and over. over again like people think abba because um the the voices are so uh their tone is so distinct um, they really it, i'm gonna it, pronounce it really their is. name wrong uh agneta 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 and anna fried their, their tones are so oh. beautiful and the way they work together is so beautiful you immediately recognize an abba song but it's not like sarah mclaughlin they don't write the same song over and over again over yes, and over again I'm now having... we have to address her uh properly she is uh our serene highness princess annie fried dowager countess of plowing that's correct she remarried she's a princess. yeah she's a princess but yeah th there is there are real distinctions between the songs and I, it's it's nice to hear songwriting come back. And of course it took a band from the seventies to do it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah. It, I, I, I was born um, shortly as ABBA was breaking up. So I never, and they were always in my band. I, I was right. teased I, and I was bullied in high school for liking them, but I didn't give a shit. Uh, um, I, I just beat people, beat, beat bullies up uh, when they tried to beat me up. So it didn't work for them, but um, yeah, I never, I never expected in my lifetime to go. Oh yeah, hey, a new Alba album. I, I did, you know. Well, everybody else had their band, like Poison. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if somebody's band was Poison, see, I think that's stranger than Abba. Well, that's the thing. When I was when I was in high school, that's what uh, the kids were listening to, poison? and that's what Poison. Oh my poison. God! Okay. Uh, you know, Ecuador was a cultural landscape. I told you, uh, <laughs> a, a wasteland, a cultural wasteland. Poison of all the uh, hair metal bands, poison. I know. Not but, Guns and Roses. Know, no, not Guns and Roses. And of course, uh, I was mocked for liking ABBA. Well, they're wearing ah, skinny pop. I was like, really? Uh, <laughs> wow, wow. Okay. Now, granted, okay, teenagers by 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 rule have taste up the ass. Like that's just something we have to. That, that's one of the things I'm kind of ex impressed with these uh, K-pop bands. They are legitimately talented musicians. Now, okay, they're raised mm -hmm. like veal and possibly subjected to shock treatments when they make a mistake. That was a joke yeah. with point. But, you know, bands like um, Twice and BTS, they're very talented. Mm -hmm. And, you know, having been through having lived through the new kids on the block as a teenager <laughs> and then having worked through the backstreet boys and in sync as you know I, I worked in music programming while that was going on to see these legitimately talented um groups like song and dance groups like i find the girl band boy band pejorative to be not really fair to these groups because it's it's mm -hmm. hard to sing there's like what seven members of bts or yes. something like that and they got to do all that choreography and, and stand each other on the road like those those <laughs> guys those guys are good i don't care what anybody says but that's the i think that's the abba of the day you take crap for liking bts but mm -hmm. nobody actually stops and thinks how hard what they do is 
I mean, when Megan the Stallion is doing a remix of a pop track, that's respect. Yeah. BTS. See, that's what I've been doing. I've 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 found myself oddly obsessed with Megan the Stallion. Not, you know, not for any particular track, though I do think Savage is is the unity of our day. Uh the Queen Latifah track Unity. But how subversive Megan the Stallion is and how respectful to history she is with mm -hmm. her material and a lot of people miss it. Like we just live in this age of stupid where people don't want to engage with the smarter elements of content. And how is that segue into the topic at hand? Into the topic I, at I'm, hand. I'm just going to give myself a little bit of a back pat for that transition. That was pretty good. But uh, yeah, we are talking about um, religiosity and reason, because this is something I've been struggling a lot with lately, Mouse, uh, because, you know, we can we can love ABBA and still <laughs> in the, the video. It was like a clip reel video for um, blanking on the first song, the really pretty ballad. Uh, I still have faith in you. I still have faith in you. Yeah, I can't believe I blanked on the name because that's my that's my personal preference of the two. But that snowman video. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I see that snowman, I laugh. We that's the chiquitita video. Yeah, that we put that uh, in one of the first fromage shows we did. We did this cheesiest music videos of the year thing, and we put that in because it was the first year we were allowed to include major bands. Because what oh. we wanted to do is allow people to kind of have fun with music mm -hmm. instead of, um, you know, instead of revering these acts, recognize that even the most popular bands can sometimes make a mistake. <laughs> and as well, I, I was like, it pained me to include ABBA, but that snowman was just so friggin' funny. And they looked cold, even though it may have been a soundstage. I know it's it's. They, they were miserable and uh, they had to do the music video because Chiquitita was a track that they yeah. used a lot for to benefit UNICEF. Yes. Uh, and so and if I recall correctly, and I, I think it's either in Dark Shadows and Clear Light, it's one of the books about Abba's uh, career. They uh, they talk about how, um, you know, UNICEF wanted specific things with the video and, you know, they couldn't be too sexy, yes. which means Agneta had to sit down. Uh, because by that point, uh, an almost mythic following of her butt had um, really. Had I had formed. no idea. Oh yeah, her her uh, she was voted. She was voted uh, at one point. She was voted voted one of the best behinds in uh, in pop. Really? Um, yeah, she had. I had, uh, I had no. I mean, it was the seventies, so body conscious clothing for men and women was in. You you, you see some of the stuff. Was it Bjorn wore? Oh gosh, yeah. the unit, the unitards with the it was Freddie Mercury cuffs. cosplay, man, right? Like it really like was. It many, really was. Many toned it down, but Bjorn went for it back then, man. It's and that's like, that Starburst guitar. Yes. Yeah, yeah, but like that was the seventies. That was <laughs> said to my husband. You can tell why people just look the other way about Freddie Mercury's sexuality because it was just the seventies, man. Like the everybody 70s. looked like that. But, well, I have a tidbit about the costumes too. Oh. Aha. Uh -huh. So one of the reasons Abba's costumes were so over the top is to get around Swedish tax laws so that the costumes could be written off. Um, really? Because, yes. Any costume, any, any piece of clothing 
for a professional that could not be considered to be day wear, regular everyday day wear, could be written off as a business expense for clothing. Because so of there's course, no tax, there's no sales tax on essential clothing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. And so, and so they created the, they went absolutely bonkers, basically going, nobody okay. would wear, so they, they created concepts that nobody would wear under daily, you know, the, I guess some people would, but nobody would wear on a daily basis as, as regular clothing. So it, they accidentally kind of created this, this subgenre, because if you look at ABBA's costumes, you can clearly see, like even, even in their early days, a huge crossover with what would become eventually like hair hair metal. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Like they were, I, I mean, it's funny because the capes the women wore um, are uh, back in style now, but that 70s, <laughs> the, 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 the looks for men in the 70s, I don't think those are ever coming back. No, <laughs> they, they just they're so unforgiving. I mean, as much as we all hate the skinny jeans and man buns of today, um, I don't I don't think 70s men's fashion is coming back anytime soon. No, I don't think so. Just no. But I mean, we could laugh at the sillier parts of ABBA and the fact they did things like that as a uh, um, as a tax dodge. Well, not a tax dodge. It You know, it's a smart way of spending money. There's a yeah. rational reason behind the requirement to this day that pop acts look somewhat ridiculous. Um, I, I think uh, going back to BTS, their colorist is nigh unto a god. I don't know how you go from blue to yellow uh, <laughs> without shaving off all the hair and starting from scratch. But other, other people have an absolute inability to recognize the silliness of their belief systems and it's actually causing a problem in mm -hmm. in the real world uh there's a an interesting piece on it's always nice when i get to say there's an interesting piece on nbc news's think website yes because so many of these pieces are such craven hot takes but um it's from a uh a religious uh a, a center for american progress faith and progressive policy initiative specialist about calling BS on uh, sincerely held religious objections to COVID-19 uh, mask and vaccine and so on and so forth mandates. And I'm glad mm -hmm. somebody went with this because I personally think, you know, as a person who does Rosh Hashanah is coming up, uh, it'll probably have, have already been by the time this this airs and you know we're we're observing it in a small way we can't have the big dinner because of covid but mm -hmm. you know we my husband and i observe this stuff but it drives me crazy when people start using religious beliefs as a bludgeon because when you actually read the books when you actually read the texts and you actually engage with them it, most of the things religion enacts pressure on in this day and age it's not in the book like nowhere like not even close there's nowhere in the older new testaments that says you shall not have an abortion you know first mm -hmm. that that's one there's nothing about covering your face there's nothing about covering your face there's things about covering your crotch when you when you step up to read from the torah in the bible 
I remember reading that in Leviticus. I'm like, really? They didn't want guys flashing their, you know, you know what's in, uh, you know what? Yeah, in temple. All right, that's really interesting. They had to tell guys to cover up. I guess that was the desert. Breezy fashion was helpful, <laughs> but like that's actually in there. There's well, no but you know, you, there are places you do not want sand in. Yes, that's very true. Or whatever critters live in sand. Well, actually, and, you know, I, I, I seriously think that's one of the reasons why circumcision became such, uh, you know, such uh, an observation, too. I, I, mean, I you're I walking around the desert. You don't have readily available water. I'm just right. Saying. Yeah. Well, it was also a a move away from more visual, more more immediately visible ritual scarification. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember I took an anthropology course and tattoos back then were not what we understand them to be now. It mm -hmm. it was they, you know, cut open a section of skin, dump sand in the wound so it would uh -huh. feel raised. You know, along with all the microorganisms and fungus and whatever else is in there, you mm -hmm. know, there's there's a reason some people who had and, and there are people who fight this to the death, that there was some observed health practice in a lot of this stuff. But it's it's hard to miss the fact that a lot of the, the Jewish laws do have a benefit when it comes to, you know, not getting a deadly infection. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and like I said, some religious scholars will deny this because they don't want, or at least I'm speculating, they don't want a practical underpinning for right. these, these religious observations because then, you know, people might start to think, well, do we really need to maintain this tradition? Exactly. And then you get these other people who just, I mean, my understanding of the whole allegedly religious objection to masks is that God created man, as they say, in his own image. And the most important part of that is the face. And so God doesn't want you covering up your face. Except these same yahoos put, you know, colored makeup on their face every time they go to a football game. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's it that really struck me because we're talking about a subsection of religious tradition who rather savagely enforces modesty norms in women to the point that, you know, abortion is under threat. Um, and, you know, it's this idea that it's this woman and her family's responsibility to protect herself from the evils of men out there. Like they so value female modesty in every other form because of a, a misreading of, you know, Genesis that now all of a sudden now God doesn't want people covering up. What? I mean, he made Adam and Eve naked. They, mm -hmm. they were the ones that decided they want to wear clothes. Because they, they were the ones they were the ones who uh, the first ones to ignore the Apple terms and conditions. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, they, they wanted out of the walled garden <laughs> iTunes format. <laughs> but it's most you have more direct um, exposure living in 
these more Christian systems. I, I can speak to other sort of craziness. Um, but you, I mean, you grew up, you were, you were educated in a, in a religious school. So yes. is this, is this a strictly kind of North American thing or because as the article points out on, on think no major religion has an anti-vaccine anti-mask position. I mean, Pope Francis has supported vaccines. Mm -hmm. Even the Mormons are saying, yeah, it's fine. I mean, when, when the Mormons, <laughs> you go, yeah. when you, when, when you are saying in comparison to the Mormons, you have to go, what am I doing? Right. What, right. what are my, cho what choices have I made to get me to this place? Cause we're talking about people. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll hate it. The Mormons are very, very nice people. They're fine people, those Mormons, but yeah, you tend to think of the Mormons as if they're going to tell somebody not to do it, you know, caffeine. That's yeah. hardcore. Telling people you can't have caffeinated coffee. That, that's a commitment, man. That is a commitment. So is is this have you found an uptick in this since you moved to um, to America or oh, God, yes, uh, really? So even in a in a highly, highly well, Catholic Latin American well, no, I mean, country. Oh, I thought you were talking about my experience of moving in America into America. No, um, I did I, there as far as I know, and I have my father and my family there, um, the religious aspect of resistance to masking and um, and vaccines is not a factor in okay. most of Ecuador. I, uh, um, if anything, the uh, any of the, the problem, well, um, you remember last year how the news were about Ecuador and how people, and how bodies were yes. left on the street because um, because it just ravaged things so hard. And one of the things that happened at the beginning of the pandemic is that there is a lot. There's a, there's a lot of class dynamic in Ecuador. Right. Uh, uh, a lot of people. Uh, the 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 you, classist assholes will look down on the on on the poor poor classes. Um, and uh, a lot of people who are in the who are poor will look at the middle class and the uh, and the upper class, and um, with resentment. Okay. Um, and when COVID first happened, it came it came to Ecuador via uh, a high society kid who had traveled to Spain. They know um, this specifically. They know exactly who brought COVID to Ecuador. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was That's a group. Amazing. Okay. But, uh, and so at the very beginning, uh, my dad was infuriated because people, a lot of people weren't taking it seriously, saying, oh, esto solo les pasa a los copetones. You know, huh. a copetones, uh, a, co a copetone is someone who has a very stylish hairdo. Uh, <laughs> okay. And that's how they how they refer to you know people with certain means. So that's is, the that's the uh, Ecuadorian word for hipster. No, that's the, the Ecuadorian word for rich person or oh, person okay. with money. Okay. Uh, and they and so you know this this only this is this is only this this only happens to them. Uh, okay. And uh, so unfortunately, in certain parts of Guayaquil, the city where I was born. Um, you have you have slums that are up on a hill, mm -hmm. and um, 
very tightly packed. Yeah. And this shit ran through them like wildfire. Well, um, yeah, there's there's really no way to prevent it if people are. Yeah. yeah, that's that's the same problem they're having in Peel region and city of Toronto is the density, mm -hmm. the, the density. population density that everybody pushed for is exactly what's making it difficult to control. Mm -hmm. And of course, it was exacerbated by the fact that it was that all precautions were ignored, you know, people right. they weren't masks, etc. Um, but so it, it killed a whole lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, it killed my aunt. Yeah. Uh, it, it it killed the, the 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 sister of one of my mother's uh, longtime friends. It it ravaged. Mm -hmm. uh, I know I've uh, my brother lost like four friends of his. Oh, uh, it was just terrible. Uh, so after that, people got their fucking act together, <laughs> and they were wearing masks. They were washing hands like they were fucking raccoons. <laughs> <laughs> But that's the thing. I mean, COVID tore through America pretty good, too. Oh, yeah. But there's a, here's the difference. See, Ecuador is such a teeny tiny little country okay. that you could put, I think, two or three of them inside Texas. OK, uh, we're talking about 270,000 square kilometers. Oh, that is small. OK, there is a there is a greater immediacy. And here's the thing. Ecuador does not have the jingoist nationalism that runs through America. Okay. Um, it, there's that tribal component. There's plenty of tribalism in Ecuador, but that is not one of the tribal elements. Okay. Uh, most Ecuadorians, if you ask them, will, will tell you very definitely that they are not proud of their country uh, in any way. Okay. And, and I mean, with, re with reason, uh, Ecuador's history has been a shit show since like the 1800s. Right. So, <laughs> um, so you don't have this this obsessive religious because here it is the problem is that a large chunk of America and this was exacerbated by the toxic insanity of Donald Trump uh, have made a religion out of being American and yes. they have this mythic image of a country that never was right that is standing that is standing in the way of what the country could be right. Yeah, and so and, and they've entrenched their identity into this belief so that if anything were to contradict it or criticize it or say or or or, or anything or or anything, it right. is an attack. It is an attack against them, against against attack about, uh, against America. And what does America stand for? Freedom. So you're attacking freedom. Except when they do it. Except when they do it. Yeah, except when they when, do it is because know, God wants them to. Yeah, there's a peaceful exchange of power, then, you know, then they go and smash stuff up. Or when they or, you know, when you end up or, or when you end up having an, with a with a state that has a state where the virus has more reproductive rights than women. Yes, yes. I mean, and un unfortunately, in some states we're we're hitting that point. So your your observation is that it's a it's the, the center of the Venn diagram between nationalism and religious fervor. That's mm -hmm. the unique a, thing that is, is creating this, this particular which, thing. Which is why I don't correct people and I don't say they're going too far when they call the religious right the American Taliban because that is exactly what they are. It is not an exaggeration. You look at the Taliban, what are the central tenets of the Taliban? You have a type of nationalism for the type of country 
a theocratic country that wants to be formed. And then you've got the religious element. Right. The religious element is propping up the the nationalism, not the problem. The, the problem for them, uh, the, for the American Taliban, is that the Constitution stands in the way. But as we've seen recently yeah. in the Texas abortion case, they're finding ways to get around the Constitution. Well, yeah, they're using tort law. They're using um, independent lawsuits. Yeah. They're deputating vigilantes. That's what they're doing. Yeah, they're they're basically saying, well, we're not going to make this a crime, but you can sue, which let's face it, you know, you can sue for anything in the U.S. So that is a deterrent. Mm -hmm. But okay, so because here's the thing with this is what I struggle with, with this whole religion says you can't do things or can and the core of religion, even you know, religions that I, I don't believe in. Uh, it, it is about how to be a more ethical and moral person. And we invoke philosophy a lot on this podcast, even though we're talking about reasoning, because let's face it, the right answer is the moral answer, right? And right. The, the backbone, even of Christianity, because let's face it, Christianity starts with Judaism and Judaism was a form of codified morality before we had the Magna Carta. Um, it is about being a good person. And there is an altruistic component to Christianity that that, that is the part that makes me go check, please. Right. This yeah. this idea of suffering and um you know, it's only moral if you lose something and, and give everything to other people and live in, in poverty and everything like that be, to show your religious convictions. That element seems to have gone out the window with this because it, it's all about me, me, my rights, my freedoms. There's absolutely no love thy neighbor in in this in this thinking so how does know. somebody who claims to be a religious adherent how do they memory hold that how do they double think that that's that's the part i don't understand that that's a central tenet of of christianity it's a it's a central tenet i mean it, it's said in another way in judaism and let's face it certain types of orthodox jews are no better in this way. I mean, they fueled the outbreak in New York and there are issues in Israel. Um, it's what is hateful unto your neighbor. Do not, you know, what is hateful unto you do not do on your, your neighbor. The rest is commentary. That's what Hillel the elder said. You can define Judaism by standing while standing on one foot. It's the same concept. It's the golden rule. And these refusals to get vaccinated, refusals to wear a mask on the concept of freedom I, I don't see thou shall be free in the Ten Commandments. The whole thing is obedience to God. This seems like a contradiction. What am I missing? <laughs> see, that's the problem. Um, that, is, that is one of the biggest problems that we have. You, and of course... Listeners know that I am not a religious person. I am, mm -hmm. I am in fact, I am, non, I am a non-believer. The problem with rigorous 
religions, of which Christianity is one of them, is that you really can't have freedom. Um, right. You're not, you do, you cannot have freedom while you are obeying, while you are, while you are, um, see, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's an interesting thing because you supposedly have freedom of, uh, freedom of will. Right. Um, but you also have an omniscient God, which means you don't really have freedom of will if he knows exactly what you're going to do. Uh, even though the they have it's the, the, the philosophical cinematic, it's the Marvel Cinematic Universe problem. How can anybody is. actually make a choice if Kang the Conqueror is controlling the Golden Timeline? Exactly. <laughs> How does this work? <laughs> because, because really, if you, th if you look at all of the arguments, there's a reason why Christian apologetics is nothing more than smoke and mirrors. Because you have a, uh, you have a question that cannot be answered without essentially saying something bad about God, which, uh, which Epicurus um, outlined with his riddles, you know, thousands of years ago. But, you know, you, you cannot have freedom of will if you have an omniscient God, because he, if he knows everything that's going to happen, there is no such thing as freedom of will. There's only a linear timeline, um, right? See, and, in, but, in Judaism, but, you're allowed to be mad at God. And that's why it sticks with me. They actually believe that the story of Noah, the reason Noah ended up so miserable is because when God said he was going to flood the world, Noah didn't go, hey, wait, hold up. You're going to do what? They, there's some scholars that believe that the fact that Noah ended up, you know, as a fall down drunk that abused his daughters was because he didn't, he didn't push back. And so he lived with the guilt of complicity in some ways, which I think in is a really interesting interpretation of the story. I mean, that's, story. What, that's what I get from religion is you read these stories and it's like, wait, why did these people do this? Why did Abraham just tie up his own son and was going to kill him because God told him to, you know, yes. and, and God at the last minute goes, whoa, 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 man, slow your roll. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Frank, just Frank, kidding. Right? Don't but, forget to subscribe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You know, I, the the tradition I come from is that you're supposed to look at that and analyze it. You know, you're not supposed to just assume what Abraham did was right. You're not supposed to assume that God intended for Abraham to kill his own son. And of course, Isaac was pretty messed up from that whole experience. He was so yeah. passive. He's known as the passive patriarch that his his servant had to go out and find him a wife. He, he yeah. was so messed up from, and I mean, you can see that, right? You, whoa, my dad tried to kill me because God told him to, WTF, right? Yeah. <laughs> but that's not the relationship the majority, I find, has with these religious stories. It's not what do you think about it right what are this the is what you must cons? think right mm -hmm. this is what you must think and you know considering that much I'm, I'm going to say something blasphemous here much of christian doctrine was borrowed from the greeks mm -hmm. who were pagan how does that square and i mean the the christian scholars don't 
don't deny that they believed there were certain universal truths and they sort of took say the cardinal virtues um or you know the the deadly sins from greek philosophy and tweaked them and added them uh refined them but it, it was a continuation of a tradition it wasn't um you know it wasn't what they do to the old testament which is new covenant now none of this counts yeah the um it's there's a difference um you see um there's a very good book uh that i think pardon the pun on this topic yeah (laughs) (laughs) um i did an elmer fudges there Uh, (laughs) uh, (laughs) (laughs) sorry a good book (laughs) Uh, um it's called god against the gods Um, And it is, uh, give me one second, I'm pulling up the Amazon page for that, Uh, but it's the history of war between monotheism and polytheism Mm -hmm. by Jonathan Kirsch. Oh, okay. Very fascinating read because uh, you first, before you jump into um, Judeo-Christianity, you, he does a very thorough examination of what paganism was actually like. And of course, what we call paganism is nothing more than Hellenistic culture. In That's correct. The, uh, yeah. And uh, the Hellenistic culture was in its, not so much in its treatment of women, but in many ways it was incredibly sophisticated. Um, and their approach to religion was kind of, they were kind of open source developers. Right. Uh, uh, and and Rome really got onto that uh, open source affair too. You had a god, come bring him over. We'll add him to the yeah. pantheon. We'll yeah. worship all of them uh, yeah. because the Romans. And it's it's the different it's the difference of mindset. Going oh you've got a god too that's awesome. Yeah. Why don't we you know wh- why don't we go to the well, you know let's go to the pub then we'll go to the temple and we'll you know we'll burn incense for your god and we'll bur- burn incense yeah. for my god and then we'll go get drunk again. Right. Um, but once you end you you bring in the concept of rigorism uh which is there is only one true god right All other gods are evil right you can't have peace and and that that is the singular problem that faces that it faces is at the core of islam that is at the core of christianity that is at the core of really really uh of orthodox um uh, Judaism there is this yeah. whole exclusion of everybody else whereas the reason even though so ways, even even though the Torah actually references other gods right by and name it's, it's that yeah that, that that's always because I'm like you know if they don't exist why are they listed in the social re- in the godly social register yeah yeah here? why <laughs> is it why why are you actually having like epic rap battles of history with followers of other gods if they're right. not real I, I mean yeah i mean if you if you if you look at some of the early judaic texts you know they re, they reference asherah the oh. wife of god baal and uh yeah. well yeah i mean there's a female aspect of god in 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 jewish mysticism yeah um, and, yeah and early it, early early on she was personified as the wife the, the consort of god yes. so you had you had two gods you had a god and a goddess yeah. um so so it's, well, Gnosticism it's, is based on the sacred feminism. This yeah. sort of um, hidden, hidden knowledge, hidden powerful knowledge, is based on the idea of of negative space, which was mm-hmm. basically treated like a cosmic uterus. And of course, what happened to Gnostics? They got you know persecuted and right, 
right but, it, but you know yeah and that's the thing like there there even has been something of a christianization of uh, understanding of judaism within the faith i i maintain mm-hmm. that because i mean part of it is rabbinic tradition but you actually read the book which is is the first rule the second rule the third rule the tenth rule of judaism read the book when you actually read the book you're like wait a minute a lot of the things we take for granted actually aren't in here and a lot Mm -hmm. of the stuff that directly contradicts you know the starter the starter kit how most people start off with their understanding of things there's a lot in the book that actually contradicts that really really surface reading um and yeah, it, it is definitely a nationalistic thing, which is why separation of church and state was supposed to be a thing, mm-hmm. right? Now, it wasn't. You, you look at, I mean, you look at these pagan pantheons that you're referencing, and they're all over the place. I mean, part of that is oral tradition, right? But, you know, if you look at the Norse, you don't even know if, Frigga and Freya were intended to be the same person. Person. Were... We know nothing about Sif, except that she was Thor's wife. In in some tellings, mm-hmm. you know, they've got, it, it really does seem like, like you said, they just bundles in stories from people they, they came across. And it, it is more like kind of the Marvel Cinematic Universe than what we'd recognize mm-hmm. as religion, right? Yeah. Um, which is why I thought it was so funny that originally, you know, the whole Thor thing, they're like, oh, no, they're not gods, they're aliens. And now they've got constant references to them being gods. Gods. And apparently D.B. Cooper. That one's still strange. But, you know, it, it <laughs> it's interesting to me because people do go, oh, that's that's really funny. They're taking, you know, Norse tradition and turning it into comic book characters where the biggest fascist is allegedly a trickster god that mm. offends me just cosmologically that offends me drives me crazy every time they do it um i know but that that to me i i didn't intend to go here with this but i'm following my logic that to me goes back to what you're saying about this nationalistic fervor giving people a complete understanding of free will the trickster mm. in in paganistic tradition at least as i understand it coming through you know the folk um of of the british isles the whole idea of a trickster is supposed to make you stop and think and not be so complacent and the trickster the trickster is the jester the the court jester yeah and every time every time marvel has you know, Loki going, I am the god of mischief. And then he walks in with freaking goose stepping ass guardian warriors is somewhere and just takes over. I'm like, what's mischievous about this? This this is this is the um this is a metaphor for order above all else. But but the fact that I'm sitting here a lone person like Charlton Heston in Planet of the Apes going, get your hands <laughs> off me, you damn dirty Marvel. Um, you bastards. Like, it, it's just so odd to me that no one in the writer's room questioned that. Nobody in the executive branch of Disney questioned that. None of the actors 
question that though i think they're not allowed i think this thing is such a juggernaut now that nobody's allowed to question any script decisions but you know it there's these things that indicate to me that we are actually losing an understanding of what these concepts mean what order means what chaos means what freedom means what altruism means we're losing we're losing the first principles upon which we build our logic and yes nationalism will do that but i think it's something deeper i think it's just words don't mean anything anymore you know i was i was uh we went to see shang chi over the weekend and we met a we met a couple of friends at the drive-in and they were talking about uh they're in one of them's in um uh, a fire uh the fight with the fire department they're an investigator for the fire department and uh they were saying that some people were claiming that vaccine mandates were racist because the vaccine hesitant are an identifiable group therefore it is bigotry to uh to deny them services based on their unwillingness to get a vaccine but they actually use the term racist to describe no, it and I did, I, I took a bit what? of a walk. I took a bit of a walk around the parking lot um, and said, words don't mean anything anymore. They just don't mean anything anymore. Words just, when, when literally became meaning figuratively, we just lost something. And I'm, cause how it's like the Tower of Babel, right? Like this is the thing, some religious stories actually still have value right? The Tower of Babel is one, confounding people's speech so we can't communicate with each other to build things. That was a metaphor. <laughs> we have to have common understandings of things. And that to me is the useful element of religion, right? That we can have these common stories that we can use to darmuk the heck out of Star Trek The Next Generation and actually get stuff done but we're not we're using words to how do i put this we're using words as impediments you know people arguing about microaggressions and this and that we're using words as impediments to understanding and progress as opposed to tools to understanding and progress and where where do you think that ties into this whole thing I mean, I have my theories about where that comes from, but I think that's less important than what do we do about it? Well, it is a very big problem. And see, we have not mentioned her in a while, but take a shot. Here we go. Because I think Ayn Rand really did point out something um, <laughs> um, about the notion of the rising of anti-intellectualism. Mm -hmm. And but but it's not just the notion of intellectualism in and of itself, but in an essay in Return to the Primitive, she talked about something called an anti-conceptual mentality. Mm -hmm. uh, because it, this is what she said about it. Uh, this mentality is not the product of ignorance, nor is it caused by lack of intelligence. It is self-made. It is self-arrested. In the mind of an anti-conceptual person, the progress of integration is largely replaced by a process of association. What 
their subconscious stores and automates is not ideas, but an indiscriminate accumulation of sun-dried concretes, random facts, mm. and unidentified feelings piled into a label, uh, into an unlabeled mental file folder. This works up to a certain point, so as long as such a person deals with other people whose folders are stuffed similarly, and thus no search through the entire filing system is ever required within those limits, the person can be active and willing to, you know, to function. But a person of this mentality may uphold some abstract principles of, or profess some intellectual convictions without remembering where or how they pick them up. But if you ask them what they mean by a given idea, they will not be able to answer. If you ask them the reason for his convictions, they will, they will, you will discover that this conviction, the convictions are thin, fragile film floating over a vacuum like an oil slick in an empty space. And one will be shocked by the number of questions it had never occurred to him to ask. And the problem, the problem is this. Uh, a lot of people consider Ayn Rand to be a very hateful atheist. Um, she was so because she often spoke out against the notion of the ideas of taking things by faith. Right. Um, because she said faith is the belief of something in the absence of evidence. And in many cases, uh, as it is encouraged that you believe something despite evidence to the contrary. Right. Um, and this type of, of mystical, magical thinking is at the core of all of this. For gen and, and it's not only uh, it's not only the purview of religion, this type of thinking, but it is where you find it most frequently. Um, and the problem is that you have a generation of people who grow up with this kind of, of, of approach to intellectualism considered, you know, the unquestioning, the, you know, just, you know, these are the things you need to believe, this, et cetera, just th this unquestioning approach to life. Yeah. What happens what happens when they encounter a crisis? They cannot function as rational beings. They do not problem solve. They do not call, they do not uh, um, collate research, try to figure out what's going on. They don't listen to experts whose entire job is to do the research and collate. They fall back on knee jerk reactions, on emotional appeals, on the things that they were told that they have to believe in order to be a good person, uh, in order to be righteous, in order to be great. And that is what we have here. It is people, people blast Ayn Rand so much for ideas. But these are essays that she wrote in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. In the, in, in the, uh, and when Ronald Reagan was running for president, she hated him. Yeah. She absolutely loathed him. She said, this man is opening the doors to the moral majority. He's bringing the religious right in. This will be the end of the conservative party. She didn't like conservatives at all. No, she didn't. But, but she pointed out, this will be the end of the conservative party because once you bring in the, the moral majority, the religious right, you will not be able to defend capitalism properly. You will have no standards. You will have no morals, all you will have is essentially the appeal to emotion and the appeal to the crowd and look where we are. You know, that that's really astute because I mean, first of all, you look at who's who's the 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 group least likely to have had two go two doses of the COVID vac vaccine shot. 
mm-hmm. um, young adults, right? 18 right. to 25. 20, 25, 18 to 29, at least in Canada, they're the absolute lowest. Of course, when it was announced there was going to be vaccine passports for things like movie theaters and restaurants, boom, appointments doubled. But these are on paper, that cohort, the most educated generation in history. So it's, it's right what you said in that quote, that it's not ignorance. Mm-mm. It's blind fealty to a jumble of facts mm-hmm. that are put in their heads, because these are people based on their level of education. They should be the greatest critical thinkers among us. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I read an interesting theory as to why it's the newest uh, Jonathan Hyde um, uh, collaboration. They talked about the fact that people born post 9-11 were raised in a safety paradigm, you know, uh, safety versus feeling of not being safe. If you see something, say something. And everything became about feeling unsafe as opposed to separating that from a feeling of discomfort. And I'm not sure that quite tracks because one would think that life experience would I mean things always seem like smaller potatoes the older you get but yeah you know think things don't seem as dire as you get older because well you've been through this before you now know how to do this it's not the worst thing in the world anymore but it is interesting that this idea of safety this obsession with safety has actually made people make less, less informed, less intelligent, less safe decisions when it comes to their own well-being. And I mean, that to me is, is sort of an example of that. Um, uh, blanking on what was the term you said I Rand called it? I know that anti-conceptual mentality. mentality. Yeah, the anti-conceptual mentality. People do have this this idea and then this other idea and then this other idea and this other idea, but they don't chain them together. You know, going back to I just I just use the Marvel Cinematic Universe because people know it and it's just inherently absurd. Yeah, (laughs) you've you've got I mean, this is this is an example of the anti-conceptual mentality at work. What is the tagline of Loki, the chaos God, God in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Glorious purpose. Mm-hmm. Why does chaos have a fucking purpose? I know that that is that is the exact opposite of what chaos does. Chaos, chaos is entropy. Chaos has no purpose. The minute you give chaos purpose, you have creativity. Yes. Why? Why? <laughs> I am, are... I, it should be. I am burdened with glorious. Fuck all. Well, uh, well I, I am burdened with glorious. Let's wreck shit. Yes. Y- you know, I I, I kind of liked it in the in the uh, I forget. Was it was it Ragnarok where he took over Asgard, di- um, uh, disguised himself as Odin and mm-hmm. uh, had them put on plays about him. And it was just basically like what was interesting is he actually wasn't a bad leader. You know, like it, it didn't all fall apart uh, under under his leadership. Um, and, you know, I'm like, where, where's you know, 
where's the parties, man? Like, where's the rivers of wine and, and orgies when Mr. God of Mischief takes over? It's like, but nobody stops and thinks. And all these so-called creatives, you know, all these people um, running things at Marvel who clearly care about this stuff, they miss even what these comic book writers like Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko who were making pennies compared to what these guys make at least a lot of their heroes as silly as they were were, were philosophically sound in their yeah, own I, way and even in some of the Mar in some of the recent marvel runs before the cinematic universe is a huge thing like the young avengers oh god i forget his name Kieran gillen i think he did this whole thing about uh loki um, you know, he, he dies and he comes back as Kid Loki, etc. Yeah. But then he starts talking about how the gods, the, the Asgardian ga gods are all trapped by the roles right. that they, they play. And so they have to constantly fall back into the play script. Like, you know, look, Loki wants to be, he does have moments where, you know, I, it would be nice to be to be liked and it would be nice to be accepted, but I, you know, I am this and I keep finding myself going back to just mischief for, you know, because I want to. Well, and, and I mean, one one should question what, what's what's wrong with that? What's wrong with somebody who's just sort of a creative person all over the place and has metaphysical ADHD, right? Yeah. Like, wh why why is that evil? There's there's very little questioning of right and wrong in in these in these stories. Shang Chi's a little bit better in that regard. Um, I think just I have because, not seen it yet. Well, it's, it's nobody's seen it because it's it's only in theaters for a little bit. What impressed me about that movie is they weren't really trying to be deep. They have a bent of essentially were telling a story about family traditions and what it means to come from two very different people in two very different places. Mm. And I thought the simplicity of the message with an absolute glorious um, Asian lost world sequence where they have like the nine tail fox and all these wonderful little the the um asian uh crypto zoological pantheon Thank got you. got a moment and they didn't bother to explain it they just had them there right and and they were as legitimized as if you walked in and there were centaurs and sylphs and dryads and all that stuff like people would know those on site they didn't bother to name these Chinese mythical beasts. Mythical. Right? It's the reason why I bought uh, an awesome cultivation simulator. Um, there, I, I wonder just how much there. Ah. See, one one of my nerd things is that I love cultivation uh, stories, and cultivation stories are based on um, Taoism. Yeah. But it, it it always features. It's essentially people um, studying. A martial art but also studying the the more esoteric aspects of that martial art yeah yeah and eventually reaching immortality um by kind of piercing the heavens uh so there's a whole there's yeah. a whole lot of training there's a whole lot of you know cleansing meridians and then uh fighting other immortals and it's you know finding what your Tao is you know what your path is yeah um, what i what i liked about shang chi is they have all that Right. But they expect people have seen a bazillion martial arts movies and they don't bother doing the lecture for stupid people. Nice. Like they have them doing Tai Chi, 
which was mm-hmm. good because if they had a bunch of Chinese people doing karate, I'd be a little like, oh, um, God. yeah. No. Uh, so they they were they did well that way. Um, and the use of Tai Chi and, and the water metaphors and the air metaphors. But what I liked is they didn't bother to lecture the audience on what all it meant. They just did it and expected people to be literate enough. You know, if, if you've played a Mortal Kombat game, you can probably follow it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you have played something like Ghost of Tsushima, you're definitely going to be able to follow it. If you watch anime, <laughs> you'll be OK. And what I, I found um, really cool about it is they treated their own cultural tropes, right? Their own cultural. This is the type of story this is as equally valid to Western traditions, because, of course, Western traditions stole all these things through Star Wars. Right. Yeah. Um, and I shouldn't say stole because you're and, and this is this is again, you're getting down to the concepts. Uh, Star Wars came from Kurosawa. Kurosawa borrowed from the West. He was using Western memes, Western tropes to say something new about you know, traditional Asian plots. And at, at the time during his life, he was considered too Western for, mm-hmm. for Asian tastes for, and, and yes, that's Japanese, not Chinese, but there's a lot of crossover, whether, whether either side likes to admit it or not back to nationalism. Um, mm-hmm. But so, I mean, we, we have this interplay and this is where this, this anti-conceptual um, yeah, this anti-conceptual, as you said, in some ways, intellectual nationalism comes in. I, I'm going to try to, uh, I'm going to try to cultivate something here. I'm, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to do something syncretic here. Um, you've got this nationalistic um, fervor. You've got this this tribal thing. You're not supposed yes. to say tribal anymore because it offends some indigenous people, but. Um, us, us Scots had tribes too, damn it. Um, yeah. But uh, Coll- you can go, for, you can just say collectivism. Well, collectivism in group out group, right? Mm-hmm. You have this collectivism, but it's not just collectivism, right? It is collectivism, collectivism with an intolerance and fear of outsiders. Collectivism sounds like a. Uh, a Coll- it sounds like Coleco. Yeah, it sounds like Activision and ColecoVision, doesn't it? That that's. It, it okay. does. There's a story idea right there. We're gonna set that aside. We're gonna stay left brain <laughs> here for yes. a minute. Uh, but um, so we've got this fear of the other, collectivist, nationalistic sentiment. Us good, them bad, and you've got this everywhere, right? And, and this is this is why I got in a lot of trouble for um, criticizing the end of Infinity War again using because what is what happens? Thanos snaps away half the universe. They bring it back. So Tony Snark went Snark. Tony Snark. That that was a Freudian slip. Tony Stark um, snaps away all of Thanos's armies, just turns them to dust. Right. Mm -hmm. And nobody questions the morality of that. Nobody questions the fact that some of those some of those aliens were enslaved races. Nobody questions that because they're the other Tony Stark hero. We win this good. Right. 
-hmm. It's interesting to me that that's the way we should be looking at things like COVID, right? Everybody band together, everybody do the thing that's going to destroy the enemy horde. But that destroy the enemy horde mentality is so entrenched that it's almost like it's almost we're almost going back to Alan Moore's treaties and watchmen. And mm -hmm. it actually invalidates because what what Alan Moore was saying about the 1980s is the only thing keeping Western cultures together was an intense fear of the outsider and that the infighting would continue until there was an existential threat so destructive the the tentacle vagina monster at the end of the Watchmen comic book <laughs> uh there must be a vagina monster in an alan moore story there must be there is one in every there single story be. but his argument was that was the only thing that would bring the various squabbling factions together together is an existential threat maybe and because and, and yet yeah they ended up well it's like can I spoil Watchmen now? There was a movie, there was a TV show, but okay, the TV show did kind of go with the comic. But, and yet, you know, the group that conspired wittingly or unwittingly to let that happen, they all turned on each other, right? It, it, was, it was quite thoughtful in what he was saying there. Of course, telling it in a story that people were allowed to find their own meanings in it. But that is no longer how people access stories. People want a right answer to a story and a wrong answer to a story. And there's no mm -hmm. room for um, different, sorry, my printer's going off. Um, there's no room for different perspectives on the same story. There's a right or wrong answer to something like Alice in Wonderland. The minute the Jabberwocky became an actual thing, um, <laughs> you know um but it, it is it is a way of thinking and this is what makes this whole thing so difficult is that even how do i put this even people who claim to be agnostic you know a religious they still have they still have a, a believers they still have a blind faith approach to the belief systems that they do subscribe to. And just because there's no God doesn't mean it's not exactly the same thing. That was a bad double negative there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, believing wholeheartedly in communism or socialism or, or even the free markets to solve everything. I, you know, we both agree that the free markets are a very important force. I admit I'm, I'm disturbed by corporations setting social norms they were never intended to do that that was what government by and for the people was designed to do corporations like GoDaddy should not be the ones standing up to um you know uh mobs with pitchforks online ratting out their neighbors because they may have got a medicinal abortion right mm -hmm. that that good for GoDaddy for having principles, they shouldn't have to do that, right? Right. But that's the thing. There's a point with everything I believe in 
where I go, okay, hold up, wait, right? And and that's where I find myself really um, at odds with a lot of people now. Everybody I know, everybody who knows me knows I love superheroes, right? Um, Marvel was sort of my first love in terms of superhero comic books. I got in at the 90s. It was a dark time. I realize that now. Though, actually, my first <laughs> ones were um, 70 Spider-Man comics. I was mm. just, I, I was enraptured by Spider-Man getting a cold. That's what started <laughs> it for me. Like him sneezing into his mask. I'm like, this is someone I can relate to. Like, this is somebody whose problems I understand, right? Which was the whole point. Right. But I am willing to poke those sacred cows, even though I know it will get people screaming at me because that is what those stories taught me to do, right? It's mm -hmm. always, it, when given a binary choice, stop for a second and try to figure out if there's another option, right? Yeah. Um, not, okay, Thanos snapped you, so you thought snap, snap Thanos. It's like, no, let's think if there's another way. Let's think if we can actually find a creative solution to this problem. Maybe we can't. You know, I don't think there always should be the Batman option. But yeah. the desire to try to actually think differently about something, I don't think it's accidental that a lot of those early comic creators were Jewish guys because they were no. children of immigrants. They were not brought up in the dominant culture. They had to navigate their way through a very doctrinaire world that basically thought they were, they were subhuman, right? Mm -hmm. They were mutants. They were, and, and so they had an outsider's perspective. They had, they had the capacity for critical moral thought that, and not critical isn't bad, critical, let's stop and think for five seconds. And I just wish the output of those exact same characters stayed with that tradition in, instead of being so, I mean, I understand they want to make billions of dollars on every movie. I get that. But you can do that and have a decent moral too, right? Mm -hmm. But people... People claim to be afraid of moralizing now. This is another, um, you know, almost a religious fervor in terms of keep your politics out of my or keep your colonialism or keep your white supremacy out of my. They're actually sort of enforcing a political view or they're enforcing some form of supremacy by an intense knee-jerk doctrinaire opposition mm -hmm. to the very thing that they are actually perpetuating, right? right. Uh, you can be so afraid of something that you can perpetuate it. And I mean, I think going back to Ayn Rand, what happened to her organization is just such proof mm -hmm. of th they basically, because she was so vilified by an academic tradition that let's face it, didn't want women doing what she did. Simone de Beauvoir yeah. dodged it by, by demurring. I'm not a philosopher. I'm a student of Sartre, right? That's how she got around, around that. that. Yeah, that's how she managed to navigate the thing that just smacked Ayn Rand across the forehead. Ayn Rand had no interest in genuflecting. 
she made a choice. Unfortunately, she was demonized for it. And unfortunately, the organization she founded have become the caricature that her critics created. Mm -hmm. It's because again, it took on this sort of pseudo religious structure that great men TM could make statements and everyone sort of fell into line behind it instead of going, hold up, you know, hold up. Are we actually getting this right here? Um, and un unfortunately, I think that I don't know if you can retrain someone who is nearly 30 to have a conceptual mentality, right? To actually go back to first principles, because that's maybe maybe this is a, a the final thing to sort the final concept to sort of examine here. To me, faith and a conceptual mentality are the same thing. This this is my religious tradition, because what is a first principle? It is a truth you cannot prove, induce, or deduce by another principle. It is just something you must assume is correct, right? Mm -hmm. That's faith. That's faith to me. That is my understanding of faith. Not thou shall not. Well, well, why? Those, those thou shall not. Those commandments were supposed to be first principles. They really weren't. One, I, one argument is that all the Ten Commandments can come down to the first principle of stealing is wrong. If you murder, you steal a life. If you commit adultery, you steal, you know, you steal a relationship from someone. If you uh, bear false witness, you steal the truth. That's how it works. But how do you prove stealing is wrong? Mm -hmm. You really can't, right? Like that's the faith component. There are certain universal truths, which to me are the foundation of monotheism. Not- You can prove that stealing is wrong, but you have to- in order to do that, you have to go and talk about things such as the autonomy of the individual right. and the right for the individual to have, to be able to own things. And they explain that in religion as the idea of the divine spark in every person, right? The idea that why, why does an individual matter? Well, there's a spark of the divine in every person. And so therefore, if you violate the individual, you violate the divine. The, right. These are the philosophical attempts to explain why you shouldn't murder people and steal from them and all this other stuff, knowing that most people aren't going to delve this deep. And my question is, why not? Because I don't think it's a lack of capacity. I, I don't think I'm such a massive inter intellect. I'm not Reed Richards, okay? I, I don't have this super brain. Um, it, I think everybody is capable of going this deep. I think they don't. And I think it's fear because the minute you start doing this, which is what every, every philosophical text tell you, tells you will happen. You become less and less popular because, you know, you start saying things like, Hey, maybe, maybe this fascism by the God of mischief isn't, it doesn't make any sense. You're taking, you're quote unquote, taking away people's fun because you're making them think about things. I think it makes it more fun uh, personally. Hey, maybe Iron Man shouldn't have genocided three entire armies. Maybe that's a war crime. People get mad at you. You're taking away their fun, right? 
it starts to become more and more and more lonely. Yeah. And we have been taught not, not, you know, we've just been taught that loneliness is bad, right? More, more people who can stand you being around is better than the alternative. And my counter argument to that is no, because if I have fewer people around me, there are fewer knives aimed at my back. Maybe this is why I'm so defensive of the bad guys in Marvel, because I think like them, or I think the way they should think if they were written smarter. But yeah, you know, I mean, if, if you look at, if you look at a lot of these villains in the comics, you know, Stanley and company, they didn't want them to make them bad people. They, they wanted them to be people who took sort of a logical wrong turn. Dr. Doom and Loki and, you know, all, all the other, I, I, I still want Dr. Doom in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, just because if you look at them, they actually think that them being in control would make the world better. They're not trying to mm -hmm. kill everybody. They're not, they're trying to take over because they think they're more right than the establishment. People can relate to that. <laughs> right. It's, it's not the corrupt businessman of the DC universe. Right. It's not the the murderers of Batman comics because they came from the crime comics of um, of the early to mid 30s. Yeah, it's basically the idea. And I, I think this has to do with Marvel being founded in the 60s, that it, it was a time of idealism. And it was a time where Malcolm X and Martin Luther King coexisted with very different approaches to the same problem, right? And guys like Dr. Doom and Magneto and, and people like that, they all thought what they were doing was essentially right. They just had a much more disruptive moral code than the heroes did, right? right. But if, if you actually kind of look at... Um, some of them you kind of understand where they got there right you know it would probably really suck to be thor's skinnier smarter adopted brother in asgard that yeah. would fucking suck right <laughs> like oh my god especially since Votan is such an asshole yeah well especially since you know you're also a mama's boy like come mm -hmm. on in 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 a norse culture that would blow and I, I just, to me, there are better stories and there, there are better, and, and this is all biblical, right? I mean, the fact that I keep going back to Thor because it's based on religious tradition, right? Uh, they just kind of cherry picked from, from Norse myth, like mm -hmm. the good Jewish boys they were. Um, <laughs> it, it's, 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 yeah, I love that kind of stuff because an outsider takes a story and goes, let's just make it fun and, and twist it a little bit. And I think that's that's what Shang-Chi did really well is they're like, we're going to use our stories and do the exact same thing. We're, we're going to do what those Jewish kids did in the 60s. We're going to take we're going to take Asian storytelling and take all the stereotypical thug and comedic sidekick characters and make them the white guys in a majority Asian film. We're going to take the mentor and the commoner sidekick that helps the hero and make them women. You know, mm -hmm. and we're just going to expect everybody to be able to catch up and, and take it for what it is without a lot of explanation. It, it's the truest. It's the truest adaptation of mythic pseudo religious mythic structure 
to come out of the Marvel Cinematic Universe in a long time because it goes back to that same, uh, the same cultivation idea that you can make a new story. It's not that different, but it's different enough yeah. that, it's, that it's worthwhile, that it's worthy, right? And I, I really think that that's, there's something there in terms of people who get into a, a very traditionally religious mindset are interested in, in trapping culture in amber, right? They're interested in preventing change. Whereas people who are creative and think critically and are sort of disruptors, they actually want to change things. They want to make things better. They want to improve things. The challenge when you do that is you don't know when you start out whether history is going to remember you as a hero or a villain. And that's the risk you have to take, right? Exactly. Do you end up as Socrates, who was a pariah in his day, but now is seen as a great thinker? Or do you end up as Ayn Rand, who sort of rubbed elbows with Hollywood, but, you know, had her legacy destroyed by naysayers and unfortunately men who wanted to co-opt her vision? You can't mm -hmm. tell. You can't tell if you start thinking for yourself. And I think to me, coupled with the, the seeming constant fear that people live in now, I really do think getting back to the whole vaccine thing. So we've been dealing with a lot of abstractions here, which is why I keep using comic book characters. They're good. Uh, they're good avatars for abstractions, right? Um, Getting back to the, the concrete with the vaccine thing, I really do think that it is fear paralysis. Let me see what you think about this. Because it's, it's going back to Hamlet. Back to ABBA. Okay, I love this. We found a way to look back to ABBA. Hamlet. Hamlet's tragic flaw was in action, right? Yes. Um, as, as, as Anna Russell so wisely said, most of what happens is because Hamlet is too busy hinkle pinkling around instead of doing what he should be doing. Exactly. But that's, we all know this. This is, this is the traditional read of Hamlet. Um, Hamlet also spends a lot of time talking and being kind of a raging misogynist. And I would argue that is a form of action, but here I go again. Uh, that's Abba too. <laughs> <laughs> Mamma mia. <laughs> I did it. I did it. I brought us back to ABBA for the closing. Uh, I was, I was, how do I do this? How do I do this? Glorious purpose. Uh, but uh, <laughs> now I'm doing the classical music hit every motif in the finale. Um, ABBA would be proud. But um, <laughs> to me, I think the state of virtue in many religions is passive. Do not you shall not, right? Don't kill, mm -hmm. don't murder, don't, but what do I do, right? That's what makes the older religions different from Christianity and Islam who are old or are newer and therefore bigger on uh, proscriptions instead of prescriptions. Mm -hmm. and, and so because people have this, you shall not mindset, it, is easier to be right through inaction by being Hamlet, don't get the vaccine. Hum and haw and drive yourself crazy and come up with all these justifications why you're not doing that active pursuit, why you're not taking action. That is more virtuous, that is more noble than sitting down, getting the shot and possibly getting side effects. 
Mm-hmm. You know what I'm like? Th- there, there is a logic there, and it's rooted in the "you shall not" thinking. It's rooted in the Hamlet, the Hamlet flaw. And you know, unfortunately, we live in a society where we're reminded of the Ten Commandments a lot more than we're reminded of Hamlet. Um, and so I think where the motivations for getting the vaccines falls down. And the reason I think that vaccine passports and mandates work when other things don't, logically, if someone is in a you shall not negative, negative choice optioning mentality, right? The only way to kick them out of that you shall not is to give them another you shall not that's more powerful to them, right? It's not a good choice, bad choice. It's a choice between what form of unpleasantness do I prefer? So do I risk the side effects or am I not allowed to go to a movie theater or a restaurant? Mm-hmm. For a lot of people under 35, not being able to go to a restaurant is more concrete and less abstract than the threat of side effects. Therefore, the minute they're offered that choice, they get the vaccine so they can go to the restaurant. But without that, you're not allowed to go to a restaurant unless you get a vaccine. The most concrete thing for them is the potential side effects, that tiny, tiny risk of, say, myocarditis, right? When you're dealing with concrete, concrete thinkers, this is these are the choices you have to offer people. There's no way around it. No amount of persuasion that attempts to deal in abstracts is going to persuade someone who only deals with the concrete. And, you know, that's that's what religion and organized religion figured out. You have to give people concrete things to accept the abstract. Now, I mean, if, if we could get if, if we could get people thinking through Marvel superheroes instead of religions, maybe that'd be better. Um, which is why I keep trying to do it. But that's basically what religion does, right? It, it makes abstract principles more concrete for people. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. in making them concrete, you get mistranslations. The minute you make something concrete, you lose, you lose the nuance. But sometimes right. you have to, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so, I mean, one, one could argue like that, the vaccine passport is much more like a religious decree, right? It's strange to me that people are taking away bodily autonomy for women saying, well, that's because God thinks it's a sin, but you can't get a vaccine. And you will just, have you ever, have you ever presented that argument to somebody who thinks that way? No, it, they, they break down. They can't argue with you, but they don't change their mind. Mm-hmm. Cause at that point, it's a feeling at that point, it's a gut feeling it's they're driven by fear. They will never, especially men and, and even women within these faiths, they think, well, they'll never have to face an abortion. So it doesn't matter. It's an abstract restriction of freedom instead of a concrete one. Well, it's, 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 it's fine because it won't happen to you. Yeah, it happens to bad people, right? Which, it, it doesn't happen to people like me. Uh-huh. And that's one of those one of the problems I have with with even 
making any concessions to the kind of, of religious belief that does that because in the end, it's, it's not salvageable. Um, you have, the, all they will do is slide. They will, they will move the slider to, to redefine what makes you know, a good person. That's, you know, you've had, we've read the articles of all of these uber religious uh, women who go and have abortions and they justify their abortion. But, you know, if you would dare suggest that in any, any, that the abortion that they had has in any, any, any common at all with the other people who come to the abortion center, they spit on you. You know, what's been going through my head the entire time you've been saying this very eloquent thing right now. What? The winner takes it all. Yeah. <laughs> it's out. simple and it's plain. Why should I complain? It's perfect. <laughs> it's so perfect. It's sublime. Abba, we love you. Okay, I think that's a good place to stop. <laughs> oh, and we end where we begin with Abba. Check out the new Abba songs. They're really, really good. This has been. The they really are. <laughs> This has been the Broken Clock Podcast on the FU Network, FUNetwork.tv, PayPal, Patreon, you know the drill. And Mouse usually ends with a philosophy quote, but Mouse, I'm wondering what your final word's going to be this week. Super Trooper, beams are going to blind you, but I won't feel blue, because somewhere in the crowd, there's you. <laughs>